and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and the rest of the world. And as ever, you won't be surprised to hear we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. Uh, This is how we'll be spending the time, if it's okay with all of you. I'll give a couple of uh, announcements, our assembly notices, I call them these days. Uh, Then, again, if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to reflect on the term the centre ground, which crops up in this podcast quite a lot. Um, Alarm bells started ringing in my mind about this uh, term, this I think, treacherous term, uh, imprecise and dangerous in its allure. Two kind of things that I read got me going about it, uh, which I will explain in a minute. Uh, One, a column by Matthew Paris, which I think casts light inadvertently on the problem with this term, and another by uh, Keir Starmer. Uh, Then uh, we will turn to your brilliant questions, which cover everything. The rise of uh, Mick Lynch, Lynchy, the uh, new... A hero of Twitter because of his media performances uh, during the strikes last week. Uh, quite a few questions on that. Continue the debate about the situation in Northern Ireland and Ireland and all kinds of other things. Obviously, the future of Boris Johnson. Uh, that will be a recurring theme uh, and much, much more. So, yeah, well, what a lot to cram in. A couple of notices. First of all, for those of you who don't know, the show will be coming live at the Edinburgh Festival and tickets are now on sale at the Fringe website. Uh, If you Google Steve Richards Presents Rock and Roll Politics, it's at The Space, the uh, Symposium Hall Amphitheatre. Start the day there, each day with your festival itinerary at 11 o'clock from Monday, August the 15th, all the way through to the end of the festival. And uh, there will be different shows every day. And what a lot to make sense of there since we last gathered in Edinburgh. It's really interesting to look back. That was the summer before the pandemic, the hung parliament before that general election. God, yeah. Anyway, epic stuff. And This being close to the end of the month, at the beginning of next month, those of you who have kindly subscribed to the Patreon Rock and Roll Politics version uh, will be getting a new bonus podcast where uh, I will be looking at the, I mentioned it last week, the kind of mysterious, enigmatic, but cinematic relationship between Harold Wilson and Marcia Williams in the latest in our series on prime ministers and their chosen confidant. Up there at the moment is uh, the Boris Johnson-Dominic Cummings relationship. Next, Wilson-Williams stroke Lady Falconder. Uh, And if you join now, you get a load of bonus general election podcasts and much more besides. And those of you who signed on for the bonus mug, you've been telling me you're getting the mugs, which thrills me. Uh, Send me photos of you with the mug, rock and roll politics, a cup of consequences as you have your coffee. Anyway, do sign up and there will be all kinds of things on that site uh, and more to come. And you get the podcast without the ads, etc., etc. Exciting times in this uh, mad world of British politics. Now, as I said at the beginning, I'd like to uh, reflect on that term, that ubiquitous term, 
center ground. And one of the uh, reasons I'm doing so is a column I read by Matthew Paris. Now, I bet a lot of you read Matthew Paris, and he loathes Boris Johnson, thinks he should be gone. And I bet a lot of you say, yeah, come on, Matthew. Yeah, yeah. And he did one inevitably after the two by-election defeats for the Conservatives uh, in his Times column on Saturday. And uh, but this is what got me thinking about the uh, how we can be drawn to a term that actually distorts this term, the centre ground. I'll explain what I mean, but I need to go to his column. So Matthew works out now what the trigger will be to get rid of Boris Johnson, and he says one of the scenarios could be this. Uh, It might be the moment for the Johnsonites to tip their doomed political godfather from the Brexit balloon as it begins to skim the angry waves. And he puts forward a scenario where even his apparent doting cabinet colleagues try and get rid of him. But he thinks that is not particularly likely. He says the obvious delegation would be led by and this is what he calls them, heavyweight centrists. Uh, And the heavyweight centrists, he lists, are Michael Gove, uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, Sajid Javid, and Ben Wallace, who he says might join Oliver Dowden, who resigned uh, in a significant twist in the early hours of Friday morning. Now, this is what I think is so interesting about the term centrist. He says Rishi Sunak is a centrist. Now, you might agree with Rishi Sunak. You might like Rishi Sunak. You might hope Rishi Sunak tells Boris Johnson to go. And incidentally, I think the relationship between Sunak and Johnson will be the source of tension over the summer and early autumn to the point where this might happen. But even by his own definition, Sunak is not a centrist. He describes himself as a fiscal conservative. Now, I think Matthew Paris is a fiscal conservative. So he's not a centrist on economic policy either. Uh, Rishi Sunak is on the Thatcherite right. Now, if uh, the mood goes round, and Matthew Paris is very influential, BBC people read him nodding and so on, if there is a sense that renewed Thatcherism is the centre ground, where the heck does that leave the right in British politics? And um, it shows that for the Labour Party to do anything at all, a millimetre to the left of Tony Blair, would no wonder people go into sort of neurotic anguish eruptions, because that is kind of communism uh, on the political spectrum as described by uh, the the acute in many ways uh, and astute Matthew Paris. Rishi Sunak is not a centrist, but he is presented as such because I suppose he's calm in manner. Uh, he has an attractive demeanor. Uh, and Matthew Paris likes him and agrees, I think, with a lot of his economic instincts. Matthew Paris was a supporter of the austerity program on the whole. Uh, he's not a centrist. Uh, let's, and by the way, Sunak was a Brexiteer. 
not like Liz Truss, a pretend Brexiteer, having been a, probably a pretend Remainer, you know, sort of flexible, to put it at its most polite. Uh, he was a committed Brexiteer before the referendum uh, to David Cameron's uh, alarm. Uh, Sunak. So Sunak, that's not centrist. You might agree with it, you know, uh, Brexit. But no one can claim that to be a Brexiteer uh, from before 2016 is on the centre ground. Now, let's move on to the others. Michael Gove. Um, you might like Michael Gove. You might think he's intelligent and interesting. I think he's intelligent and interesting. Uh, he is on the right. Uh, he was a supporter of the Osborne economic policies on the whole. I think he has become more interesting now he faces the challenge of levelling up, and that might actually propel him closer to the centre. But as education secretary, he pursued reforms on the whole of the radical right. Now, you might agree with him or disagree with him, but let's get the terminology correct. Sajid Javid was a passionate supporter of the austerity program and gave an interview recently where he said his priorities uh, as a conservative was tax cuts, lower taxes, not public spending. He thinks the NHS can cope and so on. It's delusional in my view. Um, but if you agree with him, uh, you're on the right, and he is on the right. And if these people are seen as centrists, British politics uh, is in deep trouble. George Osborne always proclaimed that he was a centrist. Um, now, again, you could agree with George Osborne. He was the only figure with David Cameron after the financial crash of any credibility in the West calling for real-term spending cuts as a response to the financial crash. Now, he was doing that partly for political reasons, but it was also an ideological response. He consulted people from the 80s, Nigel Lawson and others, and went for a kind of turbocharged Thatcherism response. Now, you might agree with it, you might disagree with it. I used to have debates with uh, uh, Danny Finkelstein about this because he claimed he, he thinks he's on the centre ground and a voice of moderation, and he sees his friend George Osborne there. They're not. They were ideological decisions on the right. Um, and unless you can place these people uh, it, it, according to their views, uh, everything else gets distorted and muddled. There was a classic example of this for when Evan Davis, who's one of the sharpest uh, and more int most interesting of BBC presenters, had his last Newsnight, I think, when he was presenting Newsnight. They got on this panel to reflect on the state of British politics then. Uh, and it included George Osborne and Polly Toynbee and a couple of others from other parts of uh, British politics. And Evan Davis uh, said to Polly Toynbee, uh, you and George Osborne are probably the closest of the uh, four people on the panel. And she said, how can you say that? And Evan Davis had got muddled. He had come to the view that George Osborne was a centrist uh, and because he was pro-Remain, uh, assumed there would be a sort of closeness now with Polly Toynbee, who is well to the left of George Osborne. And she rightly said he was a figure of the right, arguably in economic policy, further to the right of Thatcher, who never cut spending in real terms. She didn't spend enough to keep up with the demand of public services, which is why they were creaking hopelessly uh, by uh, the end of her regime. 
Um, but she didn't go for real-term spending cuts. This is not the center ground, these policies. And that uh, leads me on to the uh, other danger of the center ground. One is imprecision. What is the center ground? And in economic policy, it always causes a great deal of anguish. Uh, you, you look at Change UK, you know, hailed as this great centrist force when it uh, emerged uh, in the last parliament. Um, but then what happened within nanoseconds uh, was a fundamental split over economic policy. So you had people like Chuka Umana uh, who had been on the front bench opposing George Osborne's austerity policies. And then Anna Subri joining Chuka at Change UK, hailing George Osborne's economic policies. The imprecision is dangerous. It, it, it is so imprecise, the centre ground, that it gives no guide at all as to where you stand in terms of economic policy, which is why Matthew Paris, the brightest of the brightest, can just make the mistake casually of saying, yeah, these are the heavyweight centrists of the Conservative Party when they're not. And the other thing about imprecision is it gives leaders who are fairly insecure uh, a sense that they are moving towards safety if they claim they are on the centre ground. Which brings me into the second article, which uh, rang a few alarm bells with me. After the Wakefield uh, by-election victory, which I think Keir Starmer can feel uh, some uh, satisfaction over, uh, here was part of the Red Wall, which had become the problem for Labour in December 2019 coming back to Labour uh, with a significant swing, a swing that would get Labour just into power. Uh, it wasn't, frankly, brilliant for a by-election in terms of swings. Um, but given that he's had quite a rough ride recently uh, in terms of what he stands for, uh, his response to the strikes and all the rest of the things that go on in politics, yeah, um, he has a cause for satisfaction that he's got Labour into a position where it is gaining seats in the Red Wall. Remember, a year ago, it lost Hartlepool uh, at the height of Johnson's weird appeal uh, in those Red Wall areas. Um, but then he wrote in The Observer an article, and the headline was, Labour has now claimed the centre ground and has shown it can win. And my heart sinks. Remember, Matthew Paris, the day before, defined the centre ground as the economic policies of Rishi Sunak, the self-proclaimed fiscal conservative. Now, Keir Starmer hails the centre ground. And remember, the big question at the moment is, who is he? What is his project? What is it all about? And he seizes the apparently safe term terrain centre ground, when it actually tells you nothing at all. Um, and in the article itself, uh, Keir Starmer writes, while the Tories are focused on sowing division and hoping to feed off the fallout, Labour is now firmly in the centre ground of British politics. Then he quickly adds, 
that's not a place of mushy compromise or a halfway house between unpalatable extremes, but a centre ground driven by ethical purpose. So is this the same centre ground as Rishi Sunak and Michael Gove, or a different centre ground, in which case what is the ethical purpose? It's not clear from the article. Is Keir saying, um, after Johnson's misconduct, we stand for uh, a higher uh, level of standards in public life? Well, you would bloody well hope so, frankly. Um, but it's anyway, or, or, or is there an ethical dimension to economic policy, to social policy? It's not clear. Then he moves on. It's a place that is dedicated to answering the clarion call sounded loudly and clearly in Wakefield and Tiverton and Hoverton of all those demanding real change to how our country works and on whose behalf it works. Um, well, what what is this real change? Is this the is this the clarification of ethical purpose, or is real change something else? Is ethical purpose part of it as well as something else? Not quite clear. The next Labour government will take on those demands with a restless reforming zeal. Ah, the most urgent mission, the one that will drive our agenda is to change Britain's economy so that everyone can contribute to and benefit from a new national prosperity. Well, no one will be against any of that. Um, and there is uh, hints of interesting radicalism in the rest of the article, which we'll get to at the moment, though it the, the hints are relatively obscure because the fear of um, saying anything that might alienate anyone seems to be a prevailing drive. Now, it's absolutely clear from this article that Keir Starmer is trying to follow the new Labour route to power in uh, 1997, when Tony Blair claimed to be on the centre ground and called it the radical centre. The reason that worked then uh, well, was twofold, or actually threefold. One, there, Britain then was still really in the grips of a kind of intoxication with uh, Thatcherism. Ken Clark was a very popular chancellor in the John Major government, um, putting focus almost exclusively on his stringent handling of uh, the economy and public spending and uh, public spending he kept very, very tight. And there were no debates then about whether the state should do more, but whether Labour would be as economically disciplined as Clark, who described his public spending plans as eye-wateringly tight. Um, so that was the kind of climate then that um, meant that if you were proposing a few pennies extra compared with Clark, it kind of put you on the centre ground. Um, the other thing was that what Labour was proposing at the time in the build-up to 1997 kind of fitted the criteria radical centre rather precisely. So just to be pro-European as a Labour party was quite radical in comparison to the Tories who were tearing themselves apart over the Maastricht Treaty and Europe. 
Now, cleverly, Blair actually tried to play both games. Um, he didn't commit to joining the single currency, which was the big test of pro-Europeanism at that period of time at all. Um, he wrote a piece in The Sun saying, he, you know, he was thrilled by the pound and wanted to save the pound and all this kind of thing. Um, but in his pro-Europeanism, it marked a big leap from the Tory government at the time uh, and, and allied Blair with business, which he wanted to do in a kind of precise way. Uh, now, Keir Starmer isn't touching Europe at the moment. Uh, there is plenty of space for him to do so, but he's too uh, linear in the way he's thinking about politics at the moment. Ah, uh, the Red Wall, Brexit, therefore, if we're silent, we can win them back. Um, and so that space isn't open. Uh, and Blair was putting forward a package of potentially, anyway, uh, constitutional change, which was genuinely radical, almost kind of revolutionary in its possibility for change. Um, now, that worked again to put Blair in a kind of radical center place because it was so different from what the Tories were doing and formed a genuinely fruitful alliance with the Lib Dems of Paddy Ashdown. Uh, so he was proposing famously the devolution uh, settlement, Scottish Parliament, Welsh Assembly, all those things, uh, and uh, hinted at electoral reform with a referendum on electoral reform that bound him to the Lib Dems. Uh, he privately was never a fan of electoral reform, but just the very prospect signaled a kind of set of sweeping changes. And then... Uh, thirdly for Blair is he inherited quite a few radical proposals. I don't think it excited him that much from the kind of Smith-Kinnock era. And then you had Gordon Brown, who remember coined that phrase, prudence for a purpose. Now, the prudence was deeply reassuring to Middle England, the markets, the Tory newspapers. But the purpose uh, was actually radical. Uh, and that purpose included things like the minimum wage, uh, sure start tax credits, which were an act of redistribution, and ultimately uh, huge increases in public spending, specifically on the NHS. So it kind of worked as a package that both felt very different to the crumbling Tories at the time. Uh, and yet kept with the zeitgeist of the times. Now, here, you've got a completely different context. And that context, as we've discussed many times before, is one that has experienced the financial crash of 2008, that voted for Brexit, that has a Scotland where the SNP keep on winning. You have the situation in Northern Ireland and Ireland. Uh, you have the pandemic where people turn to the state. They turn to the state with the financial crisis. Rishi Sunak, the self-declared fiscal conservative, had to announce an emergency package of additional spending. And therefore, the context is very different. And you have to win arguments about uh, ideas and values that go beyond a proclamation that you're on the center ground. Uh, it is about claiming some of the things that Sunak is doing very reluctantly as absolutely at the heart of your core beliefs. 
Now, what's interesting about Keir Starmer's article, and incidentally was interesting about his much-criticised Fabian pamphlet, was that there were hints of ideas that are actually quite interesting. Uh, You can see that he wants to, um, working with business, do two things. Address Britain's chronic productivity problem, um, which itself kind of feeds on itself. Because if you have low productivity, you don't get the tax revenues for government to invest and work with business or encourage business to kind of train dynamically and change the education system and the whole culture of training in Britain, work in Britain, to make it become more productive. You have to be real about the levelling up agenda, and that costs money. And you can get some of that money if Britain becomes more productive. And I think he has an idea about that, which would then go into uh, investing in public services, he says in the article, so that Britain can compete with the rest of Europe in terms of uh, flourishing regions, quality jobs, and so on. And um, he also mentions, which at the moment is a bit anachronistic amidst all the sort of kind of caution. Uh, They plan to borrow billions and billions of pounds for a Green New Deal. But as I say, that can't, if it sounds anachronistic, it will be slaughtered in an election campaign. It's got to be part of a wider argument about the role of uh, government in modern Britain, a different Britain from 1997. And I think all that needs to come first. And then you can claim if you start being well ahead in opinion polls and exciting voters, that this is the new centre ground. Uh, People are coalescing around it. But you don't claim to be on the centre ground uh, with banalities um, uh, because the centre ground swallows you up, as we saw with Change UK. If no one knows where they're going on the centre ground, you sink. And that's what happened with uh, Change UK. It incidentally did with the SDP, but they weren't on the centre ground. They were social democrats. They were on the uh, left of centre and were far more formidable than a lot of those who claim to be centrists. One more thing on the centre ground. Um, there is going to be um, a centre centrist conference with uh, inevitably Tony Blair uh, taking being a star performer and inevitably Rory Stewart being a star performer. And I will watch it with very great interest. They are both very persuasive performers. But will their centrism give them enough precision to address the thorniest questions in British politics? Uh, Blair is brilliant on, uh, was brilliant on the pandemic, was brilliant on Brexit and on Northern Ireland. Uh, And he has seized this theme of technology uh, uh, to uh, claim the future. But they, they are all very interesting themes. But how do you address the demands of a growing elderly population? Where do you raise the money to pay for social care? What do you do if the rise in national insurance, uh, and and by the way, you know, tax rises was something that Brown had to deal with in the uh, Labour government and work out how the hell the money would be raised for various projects. Uh, where is the money coming from? The tough, hard grind of a population which is aging and is not very productive. 
And I listen very carefully and we'll see. But you have already uh, an interesting issue. Rory Stewart was a big supporter of George Osborne's austerity program, like Anna Soubry from Change UK. Tony Blair was all over the place on it. I think, judging from what I read of him at the time and from his conversations as reported in Alistair, Dar- and Alistair, Darling, in, uh, Alistair Campbell's diaries, um, he was broadly a supporter of the Osborne package uh, and then reverted to being a supporter of the Alistair Darling, Ed Balls thing. But he kept on saying to Alistair Campbell uh, what what they were saying just wouldn't work. And, you know, but they were, he was all over the place. I've never heard these so-called centrists outline a coherent, convincing economic program over which they can all unite. And uh, listen carefully to that. There will be a much-reported conference. Uh, The media will love it uh, because many of them think that they are on the centre ground without quite knowing what that really means. Um, But I could give so many examples of how it distorts everything. So a lot of the media and the columnists thought that Cameron and Osborne were centrists, as they described themselves, um, and therefore were in a complete state when Theresa May took over as advised by her advisor, Nick Timothy. And because they were doing Brexit, they uh, the commentary said, there's been such a big leap to the right after the centrist project of Cameron and Osborne. But... Uh, Nick Timothy's advice to Theresa May was to the left on economic projects to Osborne and Cameron, way to the left. And Johnson, in his own erratic way, is to the left of the heavyweight centrists described by uh, Matthew Paris, Rishi Sunak and so co. So be very careful if Johnson falls, if uh, if Sunak or one of these other self-described self, as heavyweight centrists get it expect economically quite a big leap to the right. Um, And in terms of uh, Keir Starmer uh, proclaiming the centre ground, he will get swallowed up by this treacherous terrain, which he thinks gives him a kind of protective shield, unless he defines more clearly uh, and ambitiously his aims for the country, wins those arguments, and in getting that kind of lead in the polls, can then say he has argued for a new centre. That's the sequence, not the other way round. And remember Thatcher saying, those who are in the centre ground, if you're in the middle of the road, you get run over. Uh, She won three elections, uh, being more precise and radical. Now, Blair was always of the view, you can do it from the right in England, but you can't uh, you've got to stick to the centre, almost as defined by the right of your labour. But that was then. I say it's a changed country now. Uh, but I think Keir Starmer has decided he's, he's going to follow the advice of those who were around in 97. Um, and it's such a different country with such a different set of challenges. Beware the allure of the centre ground in inverted commas. Okay, well, those are some of my uh, reflections. But now, if it's okay with all of you, let's turn to all of you with your brilliant questions. 
And those of you who are running at the moment or busy kind of doing knitting or drinking whiskey late at night um, and you don't uh, want to kind of stop the thing to make a note of the email address, many of you will know this anyway. But it is steverick1414 at icloud.com. And let's go to those questions for those of you who do know that email address. And a lot of it follows on from what I've just been talking about in terms of Keir Starmer and the center ground, in inverted commas. So let's begin with Noah Keat. He says, I'm writing to ask whether you believe the strike action of, of last week reinforces the importance of necessity of trade unions as a key component of a democratic society. Given the decline in trade union membership and greater restrictions required to hold a legal strike, does the action not provide a valuable correction to the often individualistic nature of work and society? And do you think the strike could have any impact on encouraging young people to join trade unions? Um, not least given their support in employment disputes, etc. Uh, many thanks, as always, for the podcast. Thank you, Noah. Yeah, there's, I'm going to uh, read a couple more on the uh, related questions because I think this is interesting. Uh, Den Cartledge writes, would be great to hear your thoughts on Mick Lynch or more specifically his performance in the media this week. Attacked by ministers, MPs, pundits, and even a nitwit on breakfast telly, Lynch bested all his adversaries and became an unlikely darling of social media, despite making it almost impossible for many people to get to work. There was such an online buzz about him, it seemed like he was on the verge of becoming the first Marxist national treasure. Is this the result of really good media training or just an example of what can happen when someone knows this subject inside out? And might be there any media lessons for Keir Starmer and his shadow cabinet? Uh, so thank you, uh, Dan. Now let's go on to, there's, uh, there's one other on this kind of theme. It's quite a lot. I got loads actually. Um, but here's, um, here's another now from Jimmy Smallwood. Uh, question for you, if that's okay. It's okay, Jimmy. Uh, from Jimmy and Bolton, surrounded by red wall seats that don't feel quite as safe for the Conservatives since the by-election result in Wakefield. Can I ask for your reflections on the surge in popularity for Mick Lynch, head of RMT? He's been all over the media combating Kay Burley, Piers Morgan and BBC Question Time. He's gained a cult following on social media. Do you think his popularity is to do with how trade unions have withered in recent times and how a lot of people might not have considered joining before and are now being exposed to the political arguments and clout of a leader for the first time? And what do you think of the role of trade unions uh, for the 2020s, given that we're never going back to the 1970s? Uh, yeah, the, and there were yeah there, there are more to come related to this, but they're the most directly related. You see, it's very interesting. Um, and this is what I mean about the danger for Keir Starmer of vaguely going to the centre crown as defined in the mid-1990s. Uh, because in the mid-1990s, uh, there were a couple of strikes when Tony Blair was Labour leader. And he was faced with the same dilemmas and to some extent equivocated over where he stood as Keir Starmer has done. And I understand the equivocation. You have to be on the side of the travellers who will be increasingly apoplectic about this, um, uh, as well as those uh, who are 
uh, strikers. But I think already the assumption, uh, you know, uh, that Starmer was going to assert his leadership, show he was a mid-1990 centrist by disciplining any front benchers who went on the picket line, um, is at odds with what happened last week, where you got people who themselves describe themselves as centrists, like Gary Lineker, uh, on the picket line supporting uh, the uh, strikers. And then, as um, uh, a couple of those emails point out, you have Mick Lynch, instead of becoming the great villain, uh, becomes a sort of social media hero uh, with the clarity of his arguments. Now, there are still places where uh, Keir Starmer shouldn't go. Uh, he should not be... Uh, in favour, and he should should be actually in favour, as I discussed last week, of the efficiency savings being proposed. No potential governing party can be in favour of inefficiencies. And they must be addressed as part of a modern railway, which excites and aims to be one of the best in Europe instead of one of the most chaotic. And so then you start building up a big picture of an alternative vision Um, But to get into this kind of trap of, oh, it becomes a test of leadership that he needs to sack these front benchers um, who the voters won't have heard of for attending a picket line and then his, you know, his team go out to speak to lobby correspondents who themselves see themselves on that centre ground and they nod approvingly as they say, yeah, we'll sack him. Keir's a strong leader. This shows a sense of purpose. And then all the voters notice is a party divided. Uh, It's crazy and dated in the past. And I think what is interesting about this strike, and it surprised me to some extent, um, is that actually polls suggest there was quite a lot of support for those striking. And it is a complex dispute to say it's partly about working arrangements and staffing. But it's also about uh, a pay award that would still be, even if the unions prevailed, less than the current rate of inflation. Um, And uh, at the moment, you can see why uh, voters uh, back that particular claim. And incidentally, in the 70s, when inflation was raging and the miners were striking with utterly disastrous consequences for people's lives and the economy, certainly in the early phases, like, you know, 73, 74, there was quite a lot of support for those uh, striking miners. Uh, it's always difficult for a Labour leader, and, and, and a listener sent me in a very interesting response of Harold Wilson when he was still in opposition in the build-up to the 74 election to the miners' strikes then, causing, you know, chaos power cuts, three-day weeks, and all the rest of it. Um, and he equivocated. He was very supple and agile and mischievous, to the point, by the way, that the miners' leader, Joe Gormley at the time, uh, wrote subsequently he trusted Ted Heath a lot more than Wilson. Well, maybe he did, but Wilson managed to navigate away back into power through his equivocations. But you've always got to root your assessment of politics in now, not 1995, 96, 97. And the mood is different. And uh, I think, you know, Kissam's got to avoid falling into traps when you suddenly find yourself in a different position to Gary Lineker on the mythical center ground. Uh, There's trouble ahead. And 
Yeah, the performance in terms and and so yes, I think there is going to be a renewal of interest to to answer Noah's question uh, from younger people in um, trade unions, especially if they feel insecure in this age of inflation and uh, jobs and so on, which are not particularly secure in themselves. But in terms of uh, Mick Lynch's performance, is very interesting. When you are clear of your case, and there are elements, personally, I disagree with him about. I mean, I think he should be much more receptive than he is to any plans for uh, modernization. But when you are in, uh, clear of your case, um, you have the self-confidence then to argue it with clarity in a way that really impresses even people who uh, would have begun as critics or doubters. And he is authentic. It's You can tell it's him. It's his voice. Um, and uh, he therefore becomes a powerful media performer. I don't think uh, the union as a whole, I understand, doesn't understand the rhythms of the media that brilliantly. But he just gets it instinctively because he is clear of his case. If he wasn't clear, uh, for all his you know personal self-confidence, he wouldn't flourish. But he is. And he knows sometimes that these uh, Tories who are put on uh, with a sort of shallow brief from number 10 or conservative central office are completely out of their depth and he can slaughter them. But first of all, you must be clear of what you want to do and say. And then the rest follows in terms of media performance. Anyway, thank you for all of uh, those uh, questions. There might be more on that front. Um, Heather Howells, uh, yeah, Heather Howells has sent me in. She was on holiday in Pembrokeshire uh, last week and was catching up with the podcast in the car on their way to a surf shop in Newgate where they discovered an alternative to Frosty's Union Jack socks. Um, God save the Queen scarf. She sent me a photo you know, uh, the Sex Pistols era. Uh, she wonders whether I want an alternative to that um, frosty Union Jack sock. I think, you know, to, to find um, the centre ground on this issue, maybe I need the Sex Pistols gear uh, to complement the frosty socks. So thank you, Heather. I'm, I'm, I'm into those. Um, uh, she also says, um, uh, Mick Lynch... Um, if Mick Lynch, as well as Keir Starmer, were to go on the offensive by highlighting examples of the inefficiencies of the privatised railway system as a whole, which the government has neglected to address, rather than passing the buck to railway companies and blaming employees, it might gain some traction. Yeah, there is a, a completely, there's a bigger argument here to be made about how, uh, what is the vision for a modern coherent railway system. I know that Kistamer uh, recognises that fractured public services is a modern problem in the UK. And the railways is a really good example. And if I had been him, I'd have made a big speech of a vision for a modern railway system, uh, more connected. Um, uh, but I think because that would then bring up the issue of ownership, it, it's taboo. And then, but, but you see, that seems cautious, but it's risky. Uh, because it prevents you from giving at least the impression of big ideas amidst a debilitate, debilitating uh, crisis. Uh, 
Uh, Dominica Jewell is, oh, she's not in France. Our French correspondent is in Germany. And she says, uh, in the last three days, I've been on three buses, four underground train journeys. By the way, before I continue with Dominica, um, I got a few emails and Twitter uh, responses to my reference last week to Germany, uh, in contrast to Britain's outdated transport system. And, and so the opposite of being on the side of people, uh, that popular slogan, so uh, wrong in Britain. Um, and I mentioned that in Germany, you could, in order to get people back onto public transport, you could get these season tickets. And uh, I said I thought they would be were about 100 euros. In fact, there someone tw tweeted me saying they were about 12 euros or something. Uh, I can't remember the precise figure. That's being on people's side. And that should be part of a modern vision uh, uh, for, for rail and transport. Anyway, Dom, back to Dominica. She notes that the vast majority of travellers, including children, were wearing uh, FFP2 masks, one of the kind of more formidable masks. And there were many signs in prominent places advising people to wear masks. The same applies in tourist attractions such as churches, museums, etc., um, and she contrasted that to Britain. She says that the program for winter top-up vaccinations has already begun for some months now in France, where she lives. Um, and yeah, compare this with the UK, where it's as if it's it, it, it's it's over. When of course. Uh, infections are soaring and hospital emissions are going up. Um, but it's Liberty Hall here. But that word freedom, the freedom to fall ill, is prevalent uh, in Boris Johnson's Britain. Okay, let's um, uh, go on to uh, Alan Evans uh, says, oh, he hopes to be coming up to the Rock and Roll Politics show at Edinburgh. We'll see you there, Alan, uh, from, remember, August the 15th. Book your tickets every day from Monday, August the 15th. Um, he says, uh, this goes back to what I've been talking about really on, on uh, Keir's article about the centre ground. What is uh, the sense you're getting about uh, Labour's policy offer for the next election? There aren't many clues. In fairness, I, I should say, the next general election is a long way off. And detailed policy shouldn't be announced prematurely. Um, and Keir Starmer's got this Durham police thing over his head. And by the time you hear this podcast, uh, you might have got the outcome of the Durham investigations with the longest police investigation in history. And the, there was Ukraine and COVID and all the other things. Um, but you need to do enough to stop the question being posed, what are you for, etc. Um, and, uh, oh, yeah, Alan also uh, is in praise of Mick Lynch. The, you know, Lynchy, he's, he's got a big following on here, uh, which is, you know, you was, was by no means guaranteed. I know you all. And uh, that was not necessarily the case. Uh, and I had my doubts about, uh, I still do, actually, about strikes um, and whether this was the last resort moment uh, to call them. Uh, but um, Alan writes, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's been impressed by his communication style and his impact in showing up the standards of some journalism in this country. I think the main lesson to take away for politicians is that they need to present themselves authentically. But are there other lessons that can be learned or are people getting carried away? Well, they, that's, that's interesting. Well, I say the other lesson is clarity of thought. 
And to have clarity of thought, you have to have clarity of argument. Um, uh, but the other thing is, are people getting carried away? Perhaps. Let's see how this goes. Um, people's views can change very quickly. But my sense is that the anger will turn more towards the government. Um, that tends to happen. Governing parties, in the end, tend to get the blame for strikes. I mean, the exception was the the miners' strike in the mid eighties. Uh, but but Thatcher had planned for that for years. As ever with this government, there's been sort of a haphazard move towards the point we're at at the moment. So let's see uh, the impact uh, in terms of. Uh, the uh, cult following of Mick Lynch. Thank you, Alan. Hope to see you in Edinburgh. Let's move on. Paul S. Johnson, who is uh, listens in uh, Brussels. Oh, and he listens to the podcast whilst running 5K. Well, we've already been going for a long time. We've been going for about 47, 48 minutes uh, today. So surely you finished the 5k, Paul. Maybe try and do 10k. Um, He says, I've just been uh, watching episode four of Sherwood, the BBC drama. Have you, what you all think of Sherwood? Everyone's raving about it, uh, including uh, Paul from Brussels. I saw the first one and couldn't get into it. I'm going to have to return to it, I think. Uh, Anyway, he he says, it features Lindsay Duncan uh, playing an NUM solicitor. In it, her character states that following the production of the so-called Ridley Report in 1977, the Thatcher government deliberately set out from the outset to provoke a confrontation with nationalised industries in order to transform the political landscape uh, from one based on the collectivism of those state-owned industries to one based on the deregulated uh, market forces. Um, uh, what's your viewpoint is that? Was that the case? Yeah, there was a strategy uh, that was formed, you say, in 1977. Um, and uh, in the chaos of uh, the build-up to the winter of discontent and years of industrial turmoil, there was, and in this, I think, is in marked contrast to the kind of Johnson period, a plan to address the industrial turmoil. It was partly based on monetarism, which meant that unemployment rose and people were so desperate for jobs they would take them uh, on relatively low pay, which dealt with the inflation problem, um, and with fewer uh, rights as employees. Um, uh, But it moved on from that to the planned confrontation with the miners. Uh, and uh, But I have to say, there was a very interesting email. I'm just trying to find it here. Uh, reminding me that when I said she targeted the miners uh, in the mid-80s, but was much more pragmatic, um, I got a brilliant email. Oh, yeah, here it is from John McIntosh, reminding me that uh, there was the massive steelworkers strike of 1980, early on in her term. Uh, which was apparently the biggest post-war strike in any industry until that minor strike. It lasted 14 weeks, um, and it was particularly noteworthy uh, because, uh, yeah, the, there's a quote here from Keith Joseph, who was Thatcher's great guru and industry secretary. 
saying it would be absolutely wrong for the government to intervene in this strike. Um, and it's it precisely, it was from December 1979, they've been in power for about six, seven months. Uh, the government's attitude will be regarded as a critical test of our determination to curb inflation and public expenditure and to make nationalised industries stand on their own feet. I believe that we must back the corporation in facing the risks and bringing home to the steel union the harm of the strike. Um, but we as government will keep out of the uh, negotiation. Uh, echoes of now. But as I say, it was part of a strategic plan then. Um, and um, now it's much more haphazard. And I wouldn't be surprised with Boris Johnson that there is intervention from the government directly. There is anyway, because no one's in control, as I discussed last week of the railways. Uh, the blurred lines of accountability are the problem uh, that requires addressing to get a modern railway system. Uh, but uh, let, let's see where we go with this. Um, there are such brilliant questions, but uh, thank you for that. Uh, there was much more uh, detail um, Let's move on to another thorny issue uh, from Jeff Strange. Now, Jeff spends quite a lot of time in Ireland, and um, uh, he wrote a few weeks ago that he kind of detective, detected a movement towards a united Ireland via a mature and reformed Sinn Féin. And then we got a reply from one of our regular emailers from Ireland, uh, the now legendary, uh, what well, was before actually, uh, the, the Reverend Arbuthnot, who had uh, informed us with great forensic examination uh, that the outcome of the results in Northern Ireland had been misread and did not point to a significant move towards support for a united Island. Anyway, Jeff, uh, uh, and he was challenging some of Jeff's assertions about Sinn Féin. Anyway, Jeff has now responded and said, I'm reminded uh, that even though I'm on, uh, he's, he's in Ireland at the moment, he says he's on uh, the Reverend Arbuthnot's stomping ground, so I will tread carefully. But can I add a riposte to his comments last week? I totally agree with what he says in that Sinn Féin haven't made that sizable gain in vote share in recent elections. However, my point was the increasing vote share and political maturity of Sinn Féin since the Belfast Agreement, together with the vote for the alliance, um, this is what could swing a border poll in favour of unification. He says, I agree uh, with uh, Reverend Arbuthnot uh, that this border poll will not be any time soon. My take is that Sinn Féin, along with other pro-unification parties, will use their time to prepare a coherent strategy before calling for any border poll, desperate to not repeat the binary disaster that was Brexit. So I think, you know, I don't want to sound again as I'm kind of mediating on the mythical centre ground and bringing you two together, but I think you're basically in the same place um, uh, in terms of it's a long way off. Um, but there is, well, let's see. Uh, anyway, uh, no doubt this debate will continue for a long time. Thank you, Jeff. Enjoy drinking your Guinness uh, in Ireland while you're there. Uh, 
Uh, Venetia Kane has been reflecting on Boris Johnson, uh, talking about his clinging on whatever. My fear is that if he does manage to survive 2022, he may not have a general election in two years' time, as people say, but more like two and a half years, uh, taking us to December 2024. Um, Yet there is quite a possibility. Uh, By the way, I think talk of an early election is ridiculous. No prime minister calls an election when he's behind in the opinion polls, as he is at the moment, and having just lost two by-elections. And they wait and they wait and they wait in the hope that something turns up to turn polls round. Um, So you could be right, Venetia, that uh, it's another... Uh, two and a half years. And of course, but what he will say is we're moving closer to an election. So Tory MPs who already have been hopeless in their strategic sophistication uh, think, oh, you know, it's too late now. You know, you can see it going one way, which is wait and wait and wait. And then, oh, we've waited so long, it's now too late. Um, That's not a prediction. I've no idea. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, blimey, look, we've been going, thank you. And Venetia mentions a couple of other points uh, which will come up on uh, the, the rail strike and Wilson Wilsonian era of beer and sandwiches, which had a constructive uh, role, even though it has been mythologized as disastrous. And uh, yeah, lots of other things. Uh, Max Kelly writes from the Isle of Man. He wonders about uh, politicians and those that are easy to impersonate. Uh, uh, If you can't mimic them, does that suggest they lack a distinctive presence and personality? Um, I only do a few impressions. Actually, it's very kind of you, Max, to see me as an impersonator. That's a kind of bonus for you when I do impersonations. It's not central. Uh, But he notes I haven't done Keir Starmer. Uh, uh, Does that show it's a reason why he won't win next time? Uh, I can't do a lot of people, uh, uh, in fact, Max, uh, truth be told. Um, But it is this thing of clarity, uh, which clarity of argument allows you then to be a more compelling public figure, I think. Um, Back again to old Lynchy, you know. Um, uh, for that reason. So, uh, yeah, I'm just having a look through at some of the others um, that have come through. I'm, I'm really sorry we've got, uh, we've done nearly an hour, but a great question from Paul Hickling, who is an A-level politics teacher. And he said, oh, he just started listening to the podcast. Welcome along, Paul. And he's going to be telling his students, tune in. Paul, do tell them to tune in. They'll all get A's if they tune in to us a lot. Uh, we, we will guide them to their exam triumphs. Um, he wonders whether there's a September general election because Boris Johnson is a gambler and does unpredictable things. It might avoid the privileges committee report into whether he misled the commons. The economy will get worse. Uh, Starmer still looks weak with no narrative, but that might change with the Labour conference. I have heard that argument, Paul, but as I say, I've already said it, no prime minister will do it with... Um, uh, a general uh, a call a general election when they're behind in the polls. Uh, it would just be an act of... Remember Theresa May when she called her one? It was 20 points ahead. Uh, so I don't think that will happen. But look forward to you and your pupils joining in and coming to live shows, maybe. Uh, Steve Petrie... Um, notes the decline in the number of by-elections because MPs are getting younger, and he thinks a frequency of by-elections and a growing frequency would hold governments to account, and maybe there could be a change that allowed a rolling by-election programme to keep government on their toes. I don't know how you would do it, Steve. 
Um, would you give MPs overdoses and kill them subtly so there are by-elections? I, I think it's – I, I can't, can't see that happening. But I know what you mean. Um, MPs were so much older. I'm, 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 for my next book, I'm doing some research at the moment on the 45 Labour government, and I've forgotten how old that cabinet were. They were always falling ill, um, and that reflected a much older House of Commons, and there were so many by-elections, and it does become a form of accountability, as you can see with the excitement over the two by-elections last week. Um, yeah, Andrew uh, Kitching has said, was struck when reading which magazine, which he recommends, especially if you're retired. We're all too young for that, Andrew, if that's the sole criteria. Um he has noted that they say that our privatized water companies um, is another market model that hasn't been copied like our railways by any major Western economy. Even the US has public water companies. Um, we really did over the dogma, did overdo the dogmatic privatizations, didn't we? Yeah, that's why ownership is a key issue. And like Brexit uh, has just been conceded to the Tories uh, by uh, Labour. Uh, Rob Watson has a fascinating email, Dr. Rob Watson, on terms. Uh, Rob, I won't go into too much detail now because I've talked a lot about the centre ground, but he wonders about the term social democrat um, and what that means and, and start to discuss social democrat democratic ideas and models of politics. He said, I grew up reading Roy Hattersley in the 80s and 90s. Where does Roy Hattersley sit on your list of per political figures worth a second look? Good idea. I've mentioned before, Hattersley wrote a brilliant book when he was deputy leader of the Labour Party. Hardly anyone touched it. Uh, it was called Choose Freedom, and it was attempt, an attempt to seize freedom as a term for Labour from the Conservatives. It's a brilliant book, and Hattersley was a deep thinker um, and much, much needed, um, although he wasn't a winner. He, he and Neil Kinnock lost elections. Um, but the depth of thought is much lacking at the moment. I mean, I, I think it could be there. Uh, but but Keir Starmer in his office has got to uh, allow it <laughs> or else um, there will be this sort of muffled um, imprecision. Anyway, look, I've got through quite a few questions. Sorry if I didn't read yours out. I've got hundreds as ever. But thank you so much indeed for tuning in. Have a great week and see you again this time next week whatever this time means for you a bit like the center ground it's pretty imprecise but thank you so much have a good time bye <laughs>